today we're going to be telling a story of abuse towards her when i was young i just had a lot of hatred violence banging on the door threatening her dragging her out of the house neglect i wasn't really potty trained until like first grade and how you process all of those things from your childhood as an adult you know that she was basically abused by my dad and that's what caused the illness actually um had trauma and being repeatedly abused throughout my childhood today on my mom made me john's story in part one we heard john's story a story of hopefully some hope but some very difficult and challenging beginnings john's dad uh, unfortunately had a lot of problems problems which manifested themselves as violence very heavy violence towards his mom and violence that john thinks ultimately led her to develop a degenerative disease from the head trauma that she received at the hands of John's biological dad and a disease she ultimately and unfortunately died from. In this episode, we're going to be asking some more difficult questions about John's relationship with his birth dad, about forgiveness, about the perhaps lighter, happier, positive memories he had of his mum and ultimately how he as an adult has come to terms with these memories, how ultimately writing a memoir during the pandemic could have helped John come to terms with some of the horrific things that he read about his mother in police reports um, and of course the the memories of his mum's last years and days with us coping with ALS. This is part two of John's story. Do you blame your dad for what eventually happened to your mum? You know, it's he came from a really alcoholic family, had a lot of siblings, a lot of them had alcohol and drug issues also. He was in prison for a good chunk of his life um, for various kind of violent offenses. It's just kind of a tragic story of, you know, cyclical, uh, generational, I don't know, repeating of this like kind of violence um, and alcoholism. And that's another reason that my mom like explicitly wrote about that she um, didn't want that to happen to me. Like she thought that if I was raised by him, I would also not really have any life prospects and, you know, she wanted something better for me. Yeah. And it's, it's, I, I really can't put into words how grateful I am for you sharing this because I think there are thankfully not a, a huge number, but still a significant enough number of 
children now adults who have experienced this and are experiencing this mm. my mum um is a uh, a survivor of um sexual abuse within the family and, se- and sexual violence within the family as well and only as an adult have i really sort of um understood this uh, and kind of understood what it actually meant but in a way sharing being kind of nakedly transparent and blunt um, and sharing these things helps because I think it it allows people to um, understand that they're they're not alone, they haven't Mm. been alone, but also how these things impact and shape people around them as well. Certainly from my perspective, it's helpful to understand how it explains some of my mum's parenting Mm. and I guess for you as well reflecting on that and and coming back to your dad's I'm sorry your mom's dad your granddad who I think you said you think didn't know or doesn't know what happened do you think there's a responsibility and if not a responsibility then maybe an urge or a desire to educate him and to make it more objective people who are relatives of survivors about what has happened in a way to help them understand relate get a sense of justice is there any of that here yeah i i don't think my mom really told people um i mean i wonder how much of a secret it was actually with within our family but yeah, I was I was shocked by that when I kind of learned that my grandfather seemed to just have no idea. Like he really thought that my dad was just this like great guy. You know, I remember going to like my dad was like a, a semi truck driver. And one time my grandpa like joined us and we, you know, drove around in his like huge semi truck. And these kinds of like innocuous experiences, like my grandfather just seemed to have have no idea that this was that this man was really um, like a threat to my mom. So yeah, in retrospect, um, I think from the from the perspective of today, we actually have like a vocabulary for like talking about this, and also, um, mm. you know, the kind of classic question, of course, came up when I was looking through all of these documents. Like, it's always the question on the victim of abuse, like, well, why did you stay? Why did you put yourself in the relationship? Why did you date him for so long um, if you knew that he was like this? And, you know, it's not, that's kind of maybe where I draw the line in the memoir. Like I'm, I'm just another observer in a way encountering this story now. Um, so I can't really, you know, answer the, that question, but um, my aunt has this story that she asked my mom one time, you know, why are you staying with Jimmy? And something that she said to her was, you've never been lonely. And so she did it, you know, out of her, out of her own kind of, you know, needs and, and in some ways he was a good dad to me, you know, so she, um, it's not like, you know, I think she was, (laughs) she was trying and it's something that makes her very human to me. Thinking about your memoir, you you mentioned it as a, a sort of a lockdown project but actually it, it comes presumably from something a lot a lot deeper um and a lot more long-standing what i know this is a pat question to ask i'm going to ask it anyway what motivated you to, to write it and the reason i'm asking that particular question is so many people have different reactions to this 
the things that you survived as, as a child and things that you went through as a child. Some people's is to close down, some people's to go and mm. talk to a therapist, some people's is to talk to other people and, and to kind of make it open and transparent. What was it for you and what did you get out of the process of actually documenting all of these experiences? Yeah, yeah. When I was young, um, you know, I did have to go to therapists, of course, when I moved and um, ultimately, like only for a few years when I was young, but it just kind of became normalized, like my new life. Like it used to be the most interesting thing about me that I was adopted um, when I was in grade school, I guess that was like very important to me. And then somehow as an adult, I mean, I just really assimilated into my my adopted family. So it stopped being such a huge part of my life. But as an adult, you know, like, especially engaging in like my own adult romantic relationships, you start to think more deeply about um, your character and your attachment styles and the things that, um, you know, like how how you ended up the way you are. And so... I've always had these kind of nagging questions, um, but uh, yeah, it was like a combination of both time on my hands and time when I wasn't really working on my dissertation, you know, full force, which was during the, the lockdown. And then I just happened to have um, come upon this kind of treasure trove of, of stuff from my early childhood, these documents from my grandfather, like just before the pandemic. And somehow in my mind, I knew that they were going to be important to me or that they were things that eventually in my life I would want to go through. So I just scanned them all with my phone, like hundreds of pages of this stuff and just had it on my computer. And it, it was probably there for, you know, probably a year um, without me even really looking at it, just knowing that it it was kind of stuff that I, you know, emails between family and stuff like that, that I might be curious about. Um, but it was the combination of like, um, you know, feeling like I was at a certain point in my adulthood where I was emotionally mature, mature enough myself to really look back on this and ready to do so. Um, and then also just having the the time, you know, on my hand and hands and um, yeah, feeling like this was a project I needed to do for myself. And then, of course, the second part of writing is like not just the the research and the, the, or the me search in this case, um, but also thinking about what might be interesting in this story for other people. And as you sort of mentioned, I think, you know, a lot of the issues relating to um, abuse and, you know, just what it's like to be a single woman parent um, and a lot of other kind of universal themes sort of arise out of this story. So, uh, what I'm hearing, John, is the memoir was um, objectively interesting. And interesting is not quite the right word to use, but I hope you get what I um, mean when I say that, to write about. Um, it was a process of, of catharsis and therapy mm -hmm. um, for you as well. But it also, I, mean, I guess a big part of it is, is, is a story that needs to be told. And, and sort of thinking in particular about that last bit, when people eventually come to read this as i'm sure they they will um what do you want people to take away from it what why do you want people to understand your particular experience yeah for me um 
this story is just a, ultimately about the kind of complexity of life. And um, I mean, I really mean tragedy, not in a trite sense, but in the sense of a kind of unavoidable conflict and kind of there were no good options, you know, when when a single parent is dying. Um, so I really the lesson for me was that, you know, when you really look more closely at someone's life and their choices, um, you really are able to understand them more deeply. And this is the day daily life of what historians try to do, right? They try to look at not only kind of objective sources, the police reports, but also things like people's diaries or emails or, you know, transcriptions of phone calls and stuff. And think about and inhabit really uh, someone's life and why they made the, why they understand why they made the choices they made. And I think once you've sort of done that work and what I try to do in the, in the book is like draw you through the, all the complexity of her life. Um, I think it's not so easy to pass judgment and, you know, ask, ask the kind of questions that some people might um, kind of immediately ask like the, the why did she stay question. And for me, it also gets to the kind of, you know, complex complexities of motherhood and um, the, I mean, the, the, I guess the most, the, the tritest way of putting the kind of universal conclusion is like people will do crazy things for love. I think it is out of love that she put the, put us in the kind of bad situation that she did and uh, yeah, some combination of, you know, denial about disease and um, really just wanting to hold on to someone, even though you know it might not be best for them. That's the kind of paradox of, of motherhood. And this, this show is called My Mom Made Me for a Reason, not because it's all motherhood and apple pie and cherry sprinkles, but because it's far more complicated than that. You know, there's the light, the dark, the good and the bad. It, I'm just thinking about the last thing that you said, John, around how ultimately the, the sort of the act of sacrifice, if you want to put it that way, um, of relinquishing you as her birth child to your aunt your adopted mother was an act of love how has that shaped you not just that bit but the relationship with your mom warts and all yeah the um i mean the the lucky part about my story is that i kind of ended up with another mom who loves me in like a more <laughs> stable, I guess, um, traditional, unconditional love type of way. And I, and she really raised me just like her, uh, four other children. So I've gotten to experience kind of like, I don't know, a more normal or like a more kind of supportive, like motherly love from that. But, um, I also, uh, like I can actually look back on this story and see, ways in which my birth mom, you know, like still kind of supports me. Like, you know, she, I think she did, um, she was really thinking about my future, for example, um, when I was quite young and had all these kind of plans for us that would have been, you know, beautiful if she hadn't gotten sick. So there is something that about that, uh, sort of love and sort of planning for my future and making sure that I was like, ultimately, you know, raised well and, 
in the right place um that that love sort of does transcend even once i wasn't living with her and even after she passed away and how much of john today is informed by your birth mom and how much of john today is informed by your adoptive mom that's a great question I definitely think in terms of my like independence, um, my birth mom, for example, moved all over the U S pursuing a career. She worked at different insurance companies and she lived in new Orleans and Detroit and Chicago and was, uh, ultimately Wisconsin. And she was kind of adventurous and that so far has been my life. I've lived in a lot of different cities. Um, I'm pretty rootless as an academic. I'm kind of willing to go wherever to pursue different research projects or grants or jobs. And that and that in the sense of independence, I would say, is what I get from my my birth mom. Um, and then from my adopted mom, definitely we're very close and uh, a lot of kind of character traits of hers. I have really tried to like consciously learn as an adult. I think she's really wise. And I think she's a problem solver first rather than kind of an emotional thinker. Um, so some people think that she's kind of cold, um, and, or overly analytical. And that's also something that people sometimes think about me at first, but I think seeing the way that that's kind of, that support, um, has really shaped her family and the way that she's, you know, raised her kids and now also grandkids. Um, I really admire a lot of things about her and, uh. I think that is like another form of, of care and, and love. So yeah, as an adult, I, I try to emulate that wisdom. One of the questions that I always put to my guest is what's been left unsaid? Well, I guess in your case, between both your birth mom and, uh, and your adoptive mom, I, I want to ask the question first of your, your birth mom what has been left unsaid and and i guess it's a bit of a difficult question to answer because your kind of clearest memories are, are as a five-year-old but putting that to one side for a second what do you want her to understand about you what would you have wanted to say at the time to her yeah i wonder um you know in the piece but also uh, just probably for the rest of my life like did she really know uh like how how bad this was for me like did she see how destructive i was becoming how kind of how much i was acting out um and i think there's a lot of ways that she kind of tried to explain that stuff away um and didn't really accept responsibility for it so there's definitely a kind of reckoning um that you know would happen if my mom was, was still around. Um, like I do have a lot of, um, hopefully at this point, not resentment, but like she would really have a lot of explaining to do. And it's also something that I talk about a lot with my adopted mom. We sort of replay the scenario and think like, okay, how could this have gone better? Like, should she have intervened earlier? Um, but she didn't really know because my birth mom was, was hiding a lot of this stuff and making it seem like everything was fine until until my birth mom would just like show up at our house and see that you know everything was out of control and i was like running away um 
so yeah, there's definitely always, I think, going to be some kind of loose ends in that relationship. Um, and some things that, yeah, I'll never be able to talk about, but I can at least write about. And then with my, um, with my, with my adopted mom, um, something I, I guess, you know, it's always, it's always a challenge. You don't, you don't expect your parents to be exactly like you, or I think as a parent, you don't expect your kids to be exactly like you, but basically there's a big like educational and cultural gap between us. So like none of my, uh, birth or adopted parents went to college. Um, and so me being an academic, I almost feel like the more, you know, I kind of become a coastal elite and like live in these world cities <laughs> and become more and more educated and stuff that like the gap between us grows. And yet I really like, I've lived with my parents for various points during the pandemic. Um, we're still really close, like despite these kind of big cultural differences. But uh, yeah, one question that they always ask me that I find it still just always kind of rubs me the wrong way is, are you happy? And <laughs> it, I feel like it might kind of fit for my older siblings who are all kind of settled and having families and stuff. But for me, that's just like not, that's not the right question. I feel like that, uh, mm. that doesn't quite get at, you know, like what I think life is for. I'm still in the like adventure, you know, risk-taking um, pursuing my goals. I, you know, I'm about to earn my PhD, but I haven't yet. So I'm not quite there. I'm not quite in that uh, point where I think like happiness is the, is the main thing. I'm more about, um, uh, you know, challenging myself and kind of pursuing this academic path for as long as I can, can make it, can make it work for me. Um, Forgive me for asking the question, John, does that mean you're not happy uh, and if it doesn't, what is the definition of happiness for you? Because it sounds like the reference of happiness is settled down, yeah. but actually your interpretation of happiness is something very different. Yeah, there's something like contentment. Like, for example, both of my adopted parents still live in like the next town over from where they grew up and they've never mm. really lived anywhere else. Like they've, um, they have traveled the world now that they're kind of retired, but um yeah, they've lived a very like content life that's been really focused around family. And basically like as someone who just doesn't have that values, like maybe as a queer person, I, you know, I have my queer family in Berlin, for example, yeah. and I don't really live my life around my, my siblings or their kids in uh, Chicago. So we have, we have basically different values, but yeah, I think, Happiness is like a philosophical question that I've also thought a lot about, uh, maybe the opposite of catastrophe. And I think for me, it has to mean more than just um, like, I'm suspicious of a happiness that looks the same as what your parents' life was. You know, for me, it has to involve really genuinely choosing uh, your own path. So that's what I've been doing. But as any academic can tell you, you know, a PhD sort of takes over your whole life and identity. And it's not mm. a happy experience. I don't think anyone would would say that, uh, even though it's really rewarding in lots of other yeah. ways. And it's it's deeply meaningful. You know, we don't do it for the money or for the career prospects. We do it because we really care about it for whatever um, kind of indescribable reasons. <laughs> That's such a beautiful way of describing um, academia as a whole. Mm. We've talked a, a lot about heavy stuff. Um, 
And I, I want to talk a, a little bit about something else in a second. But before we do, someone listening to this story may be forgiven for thinking life for you uh, and memories for you with first mum, your birth mum, tough, sometimes bad. Life for you with your adoptive mum, not as tough, mainly good. Is that dichotomy, admittedly false dichotomy, I guess, is that fair? Um, And I guess what I'm getting at is what were the points of tension between you and your um, adoptive mum, given everything that happened? You know, it does seem kind of um, black and white, I guess, when I'm narrating it in the story also, because it really was a situation of like rescue, like, and I, and I went to grow up in this very idyllic suburb of Chicago um, and, you know, went to a good college and had a very, you know, uh, kind of traditional, happy suburban life. Like, I think actually when people see like an American high school experience on TV, like that is what I had. It was a very uh, good childhood. I was in Boy Scouts, all of the marching band, all of the kind of, you know, traditional things. Um, Yeah, I, I mean, the counterfactual is like, I, I think sometimes about what my life would have been like, like with my single mom. Um, and I don't know whether I would have had the same opportunities. Mm. So, um, that's definitely like a, a big factor in a way that I feel like I, I like, you can call it like a kind of Batman story, you know, like I uh, was this kind of like lucky an orphan, but also very lucky. Um, and with my, with my adopted mom, I guess there was just this, cultural difference that I've already kind of alluded to. But the thing about my mom that like makes our relationship so good is that even though she didn't go to college and doesn't, it's really taken her a long time to like understand what I do and how academia works and like what's motivating me, if not like, you know, money, house, wife, kids, um, is that she will always read anything I send her. So she even reads my academic work and she sort of goes halfway is the way that I would put it. She really like, she is so open to learning and to trying wow. to understand my life that, uh, yeah, I find it, I find that very beautiful. And I also try to learn about her life and her hobbies. And in a way that's, you know, kind of a model for me of like, um, what really like a friendship actually is kind of like, like it involves all this give and take. And I don't, I don't, I expect that to actually be like work um, that, you know, it's something we're always like working together on uh, rather than just like the one way expectation of, you know, how, what a parent is supposed to do for a child. And I think that's the wonderful, healthy thing about what's, you know, what you're painting as your relationship between you and your, your mom, uh, your adoptive mom, flipping it a little bit the other way, uh, John, We've talked about the, the the tough and challenging times with your your birth mom. What are the, for lack of a better phrase, the moments of lightness? What are your your fond happy memories? What do you kind of go and try and reach for um, in your kind of memory bank that reflects on a kind of more positive um, aspect of that bit of your childhood? Uh, from my first mom. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I hear stories about her from all sorts of uh, relatives and like they were really, my, my parents, uh, my, my parents, my two moms, like when they were growing up as kids, they would spend their summers in Wisconsin in this like farm community where their parents were from. And they would just be, it was like these wild stories of like, they would be like 15 or 16. They would like hit the bars. They would, you know, go off with like guys from all over the place. It was these kinds of like, you know, your parents never knew where you were. That was like always growing up for both of them, I think. And they just seemed like really fun people. I mean, they're like, it's like, I, you know, it makes me wish I hadn't been able to know my mom as an adult. Um, but even when um, I write about this in the memoir too, even when my mom was already in the nursing home and, you know, you lose the ability to speak and then eventually walk. And uh, my mom was basically bedridden for like two or three years. And my aunt one time in the nursing home, um, it was around Christmas time, uh, bought me a razor scooter, like, you know, with my mom's money. And so I was like zooming it around the, like her hallway in the nursing home. And my aunt had this like kooky idea to like race with my mom in the wheelchair. So my mom, <laughs> my mom is like bedridden, you know, like really can't move, but is like strapped into her wheelchair. And my aunt is like racing me around the corners um, uh, in this nursing home. And of course she's like almost sliding out of the chair and it's like, this crazy situation but they're like they're both they're both laughing hysterically like even my mom is actually one of the kind of um i mean sad but in a way cute things about like her condition towards the end was that she just had no control over her emotions because she really couldn't control like her body or her muscles so when she cried it was like you know a banshee screaming like it was this really intense experience but when she was happy and when she laughed, it was also this like whole body uh, experience and like, and very, very, you know, powerful for her. So like, even as she was declining, we got to have these very fun moments. And I do still remember, uh, you know, those, those like small moments with her. That's so beautiful. What, what a, just a, such a vivid and touching memory. Um, what a wonderful kind of thing to um, have shared. So all of this is in your memoir, John. Um, talk us through kind of what happens between right now and people being able to get it in their hands. Uh, you know, wh- where can people find it eventually? And, and what do you want people to to do with the, the stories that you're going to tell them? Yeah, I, you know, I wrote it during the um, pandemic when I was on this interdisciplinary humanities grant from Princeton. So I was kind of meant to be doing some kind of creative project that wasn't my dissertation. But basically for the last year, I've been in full dissertation mode. So it's one of these things that I'm, you know, (laughs) I'm like grateful for the time I've had in academia, but uh, it's something that I'm sort of saving as like the next creative project after my PhD is done. but I would love to write, you know, like short, short versions of it also. Um, but hopefully it'll be a book one day. Yeah, I really, I really hope it is because it's such an important story to tell. And, you know, you've been incredibly um, 
gracious and brave in, in coming on this podcast to tell part of it but I, I kind of feel like we could talk for another three four hours and and there's just so many more layers to um unpack and mm-hmm. I'd, I'd absolutely love to do with that with you but I, I know you have um other things during your day um final um thoughts from you john so what we're trying to do in this series is you've heard a little bit about my mum um you know the sort of fun funny things and perhaps the not so um, funny things mm-hmm. um i'd love to get from you a question to her uh, and what i'm going to do is is not right now obviously uh put the question to her and then on the next episode we're going to kind of read out the answer she's very fond of sending voice notes whatsapp voice notes as well so if you're lucky you you may well get a, a voice note and i'll send it directly to you but are there is, is there a particular kind of question that springs to mind that you'd love to ask Teresa? has she has she been on your podcast before ah well she hasn't but what we are negotiating well she's only been into it her voice notes have what we're in negotiations about uh and i'll explain like that another point but negotiations about is is actually doing um a three-part episode with her where i talk directly Mm -hmm. to her so she she may well be my question for her um this is as someone who doesn't really plan on having kids but it's the question that I always uh, wonder about when people are parents is like, how do they stop themselves from just wanting their kids to be like them? Like, how do you deal with the fact that you cannot control like the, the children that you make ultimately? Um, do you ever like find peace with who they are and the ways that they're, they're different from you? Or do you always kind of have this like kind of nagging, you know, desire to, to kind of control their, uh, how they turn out? That is such a brilliant question. Very briefly, turning it back to you, if someone asked you that question as someone, clearly someone who doesn't have kids, what do you think your gut reaction would be? Do you do you want your kids, the future kids, if you have them to kind of be as, as, as great and as accomplished as John? You know, my, my sister has a five-year-old and she's like already talking about um, getting him into Dartmouth. So I'm like, <laughs> uh, I can see the, the perils of that. Um, uh, I So in a way, I, you know, sort of resent that kind of parenting, but also I would totally not be able to stop myself from, right. from doing it. And one of the beautiful things about the way my parents have raised all their kids, we all do extremely different things. My sister is a shark researcher, another is wow. a lawyer. My brother's a firefighter. I'm an academic. Like they really had no pressures on us to do. Ju- we just had to be doing something that we were passionate about. You know, they they really like let us find our own way, and that involved a huge amount of freedom um, and like kind of very lax rules and pretty lax parenting. And I guess it maybe took us like a few years, you know, in our twenties to like find ourselves and find our own ways, but somehow they were able to like support us through that whole time um, and not ever be the like micromanagey parents or, mm. or overly concerned with success. So I don't, I don't think I would be capable of it as a parent, but I kind of admire that about my parents. 
I think that's such a great answer. Like, because the the honest the honest response I think for most people is the temptation is always there to want to imprint on your child, but the reality is, oh, is okay. that that's probably not the best thing for them. Um, John, what a wonderful note to end on. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, can you tell us where people can find maybe a little bit more information about you if they wanted to, you know, follow you to read your future short stories about your memoir or other stuff? Yeah, totally. I've got a bunch of writings out there. Um, Los Angeles Review of Books is the last one, but I have a page on academia.edu uh, under my full name, Jonathan Catlin uh, at Princeton. We are on social media. How exciting. You can find us on Instagram at my mum made me pod. You'll get us on Facebook at my mum made me, Twitter at mum made me, and even TikTok at my mum made me. Why follow us on socials? Well, you're going to get extra bits from the show. You're going to be able to see our guests on video and, of course, watch their reactions to my mum's lovely and sometimes a little bit weird voice notes. So give us a like and a follow.